we hear from the Republican Party that there were all these voter irregularities. And what I say is there were no irregularities. There's no evidence of voter irregularities. The only thing that was irregular is that Democrats won. Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. In a historic series of elections, we saw Democrats Joe Biden, Reverend Raphael Warnock, and John Ossoff win their elections in Georgia. And in response, we've watched Republicans in Georgia move swiftly to create an anti-democracy voter restriction law, SB 202. We've been following this law over the last couple of months and have talked about it a few times on the weekly roundup, but we really need to look closely at it in all its ugliness because Republican-controlled state legislatures all around the country are looking at ways to curtail access and ease of voting to make it even harder to use this one formal tool most people have to influence government. So I asked Theron Johnson to join me to help us understand what it means for voters on the ground and how it's going to impact elections moving forward and to help us clear up what really is and isn't in the bill. Theron is a political strategist and consultant who's worked for Atlanta Mayor Kasim Reed, Congressman John Lewis, and President Barack Obama. Theron, I know you've been very busy lately. Thanks for making the time for us again. Ron, it's always good to be with you. And I feel like we've been talking about Georgia for months now. So so thanks for inviting me back. (laughs) Sure have. (laughs) We've been watching this bill move through the legislature for the last couple of months. So why don't we start uh, with some background? Can you walk us through what that process has looked like? What was interesting is on January 6th, and we remember that day being sort of the moment where uh, we saw these people commit insurrection and we saw this uh, this horrific events that played off in our, in our U.S. Capitol. But that also was the day where I think a lot of Democrats in Georgia, we braced ourselves for a upcoming legislative session that we had sort of um, received some indications that it was going to be sweeping uh, change. It was going to be all of these voting bills. I think we got up to maybe 80 plus bills that were going to be introduced. Ron, never did I in a million years think that we would have passed Senate Bill 202, uh, which I think is a voter restriction bill that is making it harder for people to vote in Georgia rather than making it more accessible. So there are pieces of this legislation that we've talked about previously that didn't make it into the final bill. And we're going to talk about the final bill and everything that it does. Uh, but there are some pieces like abolishing no excuse absentee voting being one of them. What else was on the chopping block but survived this bill? Well, we also got to start from the premise and the motive. Yeah. So the motive for the Republicans in Georgia was to sort of change the rules that they created in 2005 to make it easier for them to try to get a victory. One of the things that I tell a lot of people here locally is that we hear from the Republican Party that there were all these voter irregularities. And what I say is there were no irregularities. There's no evidence of voter irregularities. The only thing that was irregular is that Democrats won. (laughs) And then the the second (laughs) premise was, oh, it was all this election fraud. And Ron, you know, we've talked about this for months that you had all these attorneys and certain Republicans uh, claiming that it was all this massive voter fraud and never happened. So the reason I want to start with that for our listeners is I believe the strategy with the Republican Party in Georgia was to present horrific restrictions and start so far right to the point where 
it appease to the Trump base here in Georgia and then ultimately try to move back to the middle with more sensible restrictions to make it look like it was a compromise. Mm. And so you you pointed out the first thing, which is they were going to do away with no excuse absentee voting. That didn't make the bill. What they did, though, they made it harder for you to vote absentee. The second thing that received a lot of criticism, and this is really when this issue blew up nationally. I mean, there are other states that are going through and have gone through what Georgia has, has just experienced. But when they tried to eliminate Sunday voting, and I said publicly in Georgia that I felt that this was a surgical attempt by Republicans who support this to disenfranchise voters of color, but particularly the African-American voters and Latino voters, there was data that showed that we have a huge amount of people in Georgia, particularly African-Americans, Hispanic, Latino voters, but also younger voters who take advantage of Sunday voting. And we also have what we call souls to the polls. Right. I was going to ask you about this. This is something that, you know, I had a unique uh, experience to work for President Barack Obama in 2012. And Florida was the probably the most important state that we had to win. No offense to my listeners who know I love North Carolina and I love Georgia back then, but Florida, Florida was the place that we had to win. And so on Sundays, you would have these churches legally and ethically come together and encourage their members to go and vote. And so what the Republicans did by even sort of hinting that they were going to eliminate the uh, souls to the polls, i.e. Sunday voting, it just disenfranchised so many different voters. And I think that was the one that really sparked the outrage that you saw here in Georgia. Okay. You brought up something really important that we probably should clarify right up front, which is that the sole rationale for passing this bill in the first place was all of, was essentially a lie, Right. It was all based on the existence of massive voter fraud or insecure elections. And not, we, we, everybody knows that didn't happen. All of that is false. And yet that seems to be the, the impetus behind this bill in the first place. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, corporate leaders have come out and called it a lie. I know we'll talk about that later. Uh, I believe the, the, the most politically correct term would say that it was based on a, fro- a false premise and a false narrative. And it's a narrative, by the way, that Republicans have been experiencing a positive result in elections because they learned how to encourage their voters to vote absentee um, and vote by mail. But yes, it definitely was a creation of all this voter irregularity, all of this election fraud that just didn't happen. All right. So let's talk about what's in the bill. There's been a lot of really bad policies uh, that we've heard about in the media in SB202. One of the most cited is that it's now a crime for volunteers to hand out water or snacks to voters waiting in line. It's also a crime for voters to accept water or a snack from a volunteer or a group. Can you talk about the intended impact here of making something as simple as passing out a water bottle a criminal offense? So, Ron, I want to be fair, and I'm going to use this term. I want to call balls and strikes. Okay. And I know we just Good. lost the MLB All-Star game, which that's a <laughs> which whole other conversation. We'll get to that, yeah. So if I'm going to be truthful about yeah. this, in Georgia and other places, you know, there's always going to be the threat of rain. There's always going to be the threat of inclement weather. 
But what we saw in Georgia in the primaries in June of 2020 is that we saw massive lines because we had problems with our voting machine. And keep in mind, we were experiencing something that was sort of a novelty, right? No one had ever been prepared to how to accommodate voters during a deadly pandemic. Mm -hmm. And so what you saw in Georgia back in June is that when people were waiting upwards to 12 hours, uh, the minimum wait was two to three hours. You had people who, just citizens, no organizations, you know, not representing the candidate, literally going person to person to say, hey, here's a bottle of water. Hey, here's a little snack. We don't want you to get out of line. And we so, encouraged them to do that. Encouraged them to yeah. do that. And it was, it, was, it was those folks. Now, if I may be fair, you did have some folks in Georgia, and I didn't see these folks, but, you know, there was evidence that was presenting that. Some candidates or people working for candidates may have had a button on or a T-shirt, and they were kind of maybe going up and down the lines, not asking for people to vote. Right. Uh, but advertising, did, essentially. You know, advertising, right? Yeah. But the law has always been in Georgia that you could not do anything within 150 feet of uh, the voting precinct. And then the law also states now in Senate Bill 202 that the the precinct in the county that's administering the election can serve water and give food within the 150 feet. But here's the, the here's the optics problem that the Republicans have been having. And this is a term that I use is that you're basically criminalizing civic engagement. And that's essentially what they're doing. And to, and, and to me, some, giving someone water, giving someone food, encouraging them to express their most fundamental right, and that is the right to vote, yeah. is where it became a, a narrative and optics problem for the Republicans in Georgia. So that makes a lot of sense, and that's a clarification that's totally valid. I think that's the case in in most places, in a lot of places, where there's no campaigning allowed within a certain number of feet of uh, of a voting of a voting location of a polling location. But that usually means you can't wear a T-shirt with a candidate's logo on it. You can't wear a button. You can't have any signage like that. But it has nothing to do with individual citizens helping out other citizens who are you know thirsty, hungry, waiting in line, right? So. Is there, why wouldn't that law, the one that already exists, no campaigning within a polling location, why wouldn't that be sufficient, essentially? Well, let's just deal with the undertone. The undertone, I believe, in all this is that, look, you go to certain white precincts mm -hmm. in Georgia, particularly in Atlanta, where I live. I live in Buckhead, which is a very uh, wealthy area of Atlanta. A lot of people who live in this area do very well, and it's a predominantly white uh, area in, in Atlanta. We, and, and so you probably don't see the distribution historically in some of the white precincts, you know, but you definitely see it in some of the in-town more urban mixed precincts where you do see people handing out water. The other thing, Ron, is that happened this year, because again, we were in a deadly pandemic, is people were actually giving people lawn chairs. You know, people were literally taking their chairs they would historically yeah. use to go out into the park, <laughs> yeah. giving them to seniors and people to to, to sit. But in the in the areas, in the rural areas of Georgia and in some metro areas of Georgia where we have very high turnout precincts, it has always been sort of a culture here that you give people water, you give people snacks. Sometimes, you know, people like to play music to keep folks entertained. And so for the Republicans to sort of go after that with really no rationale and to your point, just keep the current law in place, it, it can't help but make you believe that there was some type of undertone to this. Now, there were organizations that 
came to Georgia to encourage people to stay in line. And again, you guys encouraged folks to do that, and I did too. But they were not influencing the vote. They were not telling people who they should vote for. Um, And so this is is one that uh, has picked up a lot of national media. And I just... The best way to phrase it is that you're basically criminalizing civic engagement. Civic engagement. That's a, that's a really good way to put it. Where the previous law would have been completely sufficient in order to punish the people who were actually campaigning and, and you know, doing inappropriate um, activities there. And, and it's, it's, the, it's the misdemeanor yeah. that is the icing on the cake. I mean, yeah. you literally can, yeah. you can be arrested. <laughs> you can, you, it's committing a crime. That part, I think, could have been left off. All right. So there are also some provisions in the bill that have gotten far less media attention, but are really egregious. So for one thing, a voter can now be charged with a misdemeanor if they allow someone to see them marking their ballot at all. And you can be charged with a felony if you witness someone else marking their own absentee ballot, even if you're in the privacy of your own home. And you can be charged with a misdemeanor for photographing your absentee ballot. So what impact can all these criminal offenses have and on on who specifically? Well, the next phase of where we are is we got to educate voters how now in its current state to vote absentee. But at a time where you're requiring people to now present an ID where the signature match that we've had historically run Mm -hmm. has worked. Again, I want to go back to our listeners. This law was put in place by the Republicans in 2005. So it was good then. It was good then. It's not good now because they lost. (laughs) And and, and I, I, you know, you know, you guys always bring me back. So you always want me to give you the, you know, as we call it, the real deal. The real deal. Shout out, shout out to real deal. Holyfield. Um, But the truth of the matter is it took us until probably about 2016 to, to figure out how to vote by mail. And then Stacey Abrams came in 2018 and then we, we, you know, we did this whole massive campaign around it. So everything you just explained to me is very hard uh, to believe that it doesn't make it harder for people to vote absentee when we know because of COVID-19, because people uh, were told by the former president don't trust the U.S. Postal Service, right? Yeah. Uh, we haven't even talked about dropouts yet, but yeah, we'll get, we'll get to that. there. Absolutely. You saw a massive number of people deciding because they were encouraged to by both parties at one time to 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 vote absentee, and so now these restrictions that have been just put in place is this is why I'm so happy you've given us the opportunity to walk our listeners through. These are the type of things where I, I disagree with Republicans when you say you're not restricting people's access to vote. Yeah. Uh, and, and also, I mean, the fact that the, the criminalization of anything around voting by mail just makes it that much more sort of anxiety inducing for an honest citizen that they're going to do something wrong. Right. Yep. OK, so let's talk about absentee voting and early voting. So this new law shortens the period to request an absentee ballot. Uh, to 78 days before the election. It also shortens the request deadline to 11 days before the before the election, which is actually five days earlier than what individual counties uh, supported. And I believe it's the case in Georgia that the individual counties are the ones who actually administer the election process. So they're the ones re- charged with carrying out elections. And this went even further than they were comfortable with. Is that right? Yeah, you're, you're exactly right. So Isosa Osa from... Fair Fight tweeted that over 57,000 people requested ballots earlier than the new start date in 2020, 
but also over 17,000 people requested a ballot after the new deadline. And for context, Biden won Georgia by under 12,000 votes. It's like, to me, it's almost as if they looked at the margin of Biden's victory and figured out a way to decrease the Democrat votes by just enough. But, you know, how should we expect the new date to impact absentee ballots? It's going to impact both parties, but I think it's going to disproportionately impact our voters, right? Yeah. But let's go back a second, Ron, really quickly. We haven't talked about this guy in a while. I know you've talked about him in previous shows, but our Secretary of State, Brad Raffensperger. Yeah. Yeah. For your listeners, (laughs) back in when this deadly pandemic, which we are still experiencing right now, by the way, this Secretary of State said, if you are a registered active Georgia voter, and there was some pushback from Democrats, you know, around the term active. But if you're a registered voter, I'm going to proactively mail you an absentee ballot application. Yeah, I remember. Remember that. Yep. And so this was something that had never been heard of. Matter of fact, he didn't even get a lot of praise for that. And it's Democrats. We were like, wow. Okay, he's going to, you know, so so there's no excuse, you know, for you not to say, hey, I right. don't have a way of voting. Yes, because we're in a deadly pandemic and people need to vote, so let's mail them applications. Primary yeah. happens, and I believe the Republicans say, oh, my God, Democrats have learned how to <laughs> organize, right? Or their their voters are now voting more absentee. And so then fast forward, we we then, to your the stats that you just gave, Democrats were kind of like, well, why wait until early voting? Because traditionally in Georgia, where we do very, very well, we as Democrats do very, very well in Georgia, is that we do very well in the early vote period. We we have held our own on Election Day, but historically in Georgia, Republicans have always, at least for the last decade or so, had a higher number of turnout on Election Day. So the strategy up until 2020 was, hey, vote early, souls to the polls, let's get our votes banked in and then, mm-hmm. you know, pray that it doesn't rain right. on Election Day right. and have a right. massive Democrat turnout. Right. So, did we, so this is what we did differently this time, Ron. We still did those two things. But then we said as Democrats, hey, Secretary of State. Gave you an opportunity during a deadly pandemic to have an application. Why don't we encourage people to fill it out legally and ethically? You know, we're not doing anything that's not um, breaking the rules. But then now people going into November, they were like, well, hold on. I can, I can actually vote absentee and I can do it sooner. And I don't have to wait in lines and early voting because I've seen all the images on television with people, you know, um, waiting for hours. So you had a higher turnout. And so... That's why I believe you saw the number of days sort of go down. Now, let me be fair. Again, balls and strikes. Yeah. You, you mentioned something that's very important. The local election boards and the local election chiefs, those are the people who are in Georgia, um, are responsible for administering the elections, right? There's a huge burden on election workers because they did not anticipate that they were going to have this massive amount of absentee voting that was going to happen. And so I think the the, the premise was, let's give these folks a little bit more time to prepare. Um, you know, it was too much on them leading up until the things that was happening with election day. But then I go back to an optics and a narrative battle that I believe the, the, the Republicans uh, were challenged with. Yeah. So, There were also a couple of changes to voter ID requirements for absentee ballot applications. And there's, as I understand it, there's now a new voter ID requirement for applications and for the actual ballot. So can you uh, talk about who's most likely to be impacted by these new rules and, and why that presents a challenge? It's going to hurt our senior community. Um, you know, roughly 
in Georgia, we have about 200,000 plus people who don't have IDs. Uh, and that's no form of identification. They don't have a state issue ID. They don't have a driver's license. I also think it's going to hurt our millennial community. I can't tell you, Ron, how many young people I meet in Atlanta who just, they don't drive. Really? One, because they don't believe in it. They're huge yeah. advocates of public transit, and I okay. am too. But also, you know, we have traffic issues here right. in, in Atlanta. <laughs> yeah. so, it, so it hurts them. Now, that yeah. particular community, probably, you know, most of them should be able to say, okay, now yeah. I need to go get an ID. So yeah, it's going to yeah, hurt yeah. the seniors, it's going to hurt the millennials, and it's going to hurt the people in Georgia, particularly in rural areas who don't have an ID. Uh, and so as we as we sort of move on from this, uh, and again, I want to be fair. You did have our Speaker of the House, David Ralston, who's a Republican uh, from Blue Ridge, Georgia, introduce a bill to say, I. he basically said the bill would allow the state government to issue free IDs to every Georgia right. resident. Yeah. Yeah. That bill didn't pass. Uh, and <laughs> and Surprise. so... <laughs> Surprise. <laughs> so it's gonna it's definitely gonna hurt those sectors of people. And what we're gonna have to do as Democrats, we now are going to have to sort of identify, you know, with the means that we'll have available to us, uh, who are these people who don't have identification and try to get them some type of ID um before the next election. You talked about drop boxes, so let's let's do that one real quick. The new law allows for one drop box. For every 100,000 voters or for every advanced voting location, whichever is fewer. It also bans drop boxes from being outside, uh, which is new. So how are these changes going to impact absentee ballot drop off? Again, it's going to it's going to restrict participation. The drop boxes were introduced and it wasn't a state law at the time, but it was a special provision that was given to voters because of the deadly pandemic. And so I believe personally that the drop boxes uh, in it in its previous form was a success. Mm-hmm. Number one, there's no evidence of voter fraud. There's no evidence of people tampering with the the uh, drop boxes. I mean, just none. These drop boxes have video surveillance around them. And so my simple response to the Republican legislature: If it's not broke, why try to fix it? It worked, right? Well, but, not for them. Right. <laughs> Sorry. Again, there we go. Yeah, right. It, I mean, yeah. the, like, it's just so obvious. It's just, the, there's no other rationale that's being provided here. That's why it's so sort of egregious, right, on its face. And in places like Fulton County, where the city of Atlanta is located, their voter election chief and their chairman of the county, Rob Pitts, they increased the number of drop boxes um, for the November election. And so my wife, who's a dermatologist, Harvard-educated woman, literally got her absentee ballot and was like, okay, I'm going to send it in. I'm going to send it in. I'm going to send it in. And finally, one day, she said, you know what? I'm just going to go take it to one of the drop boxes. And and then the other community that it hurts the most are the people in the disabled community because so many of them were able to be driven or some of them are able to drive themselves and just simply drop it off into a, a drop box that was located outside. Now what they have to do is get out of the car or be sort of escorted in, and, and they can only vote in these drop boxes 
between the hours, I think, of eight and five. Yeah, right. And, and so again, which it's a Dropbox, like this isn't the whole point for con, you know convenience. Yeah. yeah, and and so now you're putting a unfunded mandate, and that's something that Republicans used to be against in Georgia. They they basically did not support unfunded mandates, but now you're putting a unfunded mandate and a unfunded burden on the county officials in these government buildings who now have got to secure and oversee drop boxes where you could just yeah leave it the way it was. Leave it the way it was, right. And, and everything will be fine. Because now you have to have people going around locking up the drop boxes and then unlocking them in the morning, and it's a whole operation, right? Absolutely. Where, as before, they were perfectly secure as they were. Yep. Yeah, okay. All right. This is a bit of a confusing one, so I want to, you know, I want to make sure everybody understands how this works. Um, SB 202 dramatically altered the structure of the State Board of Elections. It removed the Secretary of State as the chair of the election board and gave the state legislature the power to appoint the new chair. So now the Georgia legislature will get to choose a majority of the state election board members, three out of five of them moving forward. So essentially they can appoint a majority if they want to. And this could have a big impact on how counties run elections. But this was also a move to reduce the power of the secretary of state. They'll they'll no longer be a voting member of the elections board. They won't be able to appoint members of the performance review board or proactively send vote by mail applications as Brad Raffensperger did. We just talked about that. So there are a couple of really interesting threads to pull on here. And, you know, for one thing, the Georgia Secretary of State spent a couple of months in the national spotlight uh, defending the results of the election. But we also just saw three Democrats win statewide elections. So take a step back here for a minute and help us understand the difference in the balance of power in the state legislature and why Republicans are trying to move more power away from the executive branch and to the legislature. Ron, that's why I love you, man, because you 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 just throw me just softballs <laughs> and, and, and you actually make my job easier because I don't have to get too in the weeds because I know we you know we gotta make sure we get everything yeah. in with the time. It's all about local control. Okay. You're taking away local control from county uh elections administrators who are responsible for conducting their county elections. But wait, you might be thinking, don't Republicans like local control? They used to. <laughs> so the, the thing that's so crazy about this one is that you now give so much power to a Republican-controlled legislature to basically say, if a county, for whatever reason, in that state rep or state senator's mind, is not coordinating and conducting the election the way that they think it should be, then you're able to remove this county official and appoint someone to be on the state board, which, by the way, the Secretary of State of Georgia is not on. And let's put a pin in that. The Secretary of State of Georgia is a constitutional elected official. Right. His sole responsibility is to administer elections in Georgia, period, to make sure they're secure, make sure they're fair, and make sure they're accessible. I can't help but believe that him standing up to the former president and him sort of going away from what some of people in his party may believe was disloyal. We got to remember the two former U.S. senators called for his resignation, yep. Ron. You and yep. I talked about this. To remove him from administering the elections and to give so much power to a Republican-controlled legislature, 
you literally just gave Democrats an opportunity to say, not only are you taking away people's uh, ability to have local control and administer elections, but you want to control the outcome. The other thing that's so crazy about this is that I have for months in Georgia, even before the election, have been encouraging the Secretary of State to take more of a proactive approach. Work with the local county officials. Work with them to make sure they have the proper training. Now, again, I want to be fair. We do have a couple counties in Georgia that have historically had some challenges. I won't name them because a lot of them I work with, right? But the data is there. What I'm saying is before you put this provision of the law in Senate Bill 202 that strips away their power, if if you suspect that they're uh, not doing the right thing, why don't you proactively work with them ahead of time in the off months to make sure they have the training, make sure you have the communications, make sure they know how to work the machines. The biggest thing in Georgia, Ron, is that we had people who had been on the job as election workers for decades. Yeah. They simply did not know how to operate the machine. They didn't know how yeah. to load the data cards and to, and to you know, make sure the ballots were counted correctly. And so this one right here is a is a power grab by the Republicans that I, I'm so happy that you gave me a, a few minutes to talk about that this proposed structure takes away the Secretary of State's powers to administer elections, who's who's an elected constitutional officer. And it gives so much control to a Republican state-led legislature, which totally goes back on one of the principles that I think Republicans have uh, been so proud of for so many years, and it is local control. Local control, exactly. And to your point from earlier on, this also is just, you know, well, it's not going to, it's it's actually not going to, I think, re- result in an optics problem because it's, too, it's, it's a little bit too confusing for a, you know, a cable news soundbite. But really, it just looks like punishment for the Secretary of State um, standing up to Donald Trump when he wanted him to go fire officials. And right, that's what it looks like. And, and, and last thing is this, and I got to get this this in. If this law had been in place during the election of President Biden and former President Donald Trump and the Senate runoffs, mm-hmm. Donald Trump would have had his way. Donald Trump would have been able to overturn the election if Senate Bill 202 had been in place because what he would have been able to do is convince enough state legislators that it was this massive amount of voter fraud, these voter irregularities. So that's what I want our listeners to know, that if this bill had been in place, Senate Bill 202, Donald Trump would have gotten his wish and he would have basically destroyed democracy in our country. So the next time we have an anti-democratic leader and a close election in Georgia, we've got trouble, essentially. I mean, we're going to have to win big here. I mean, like, if you want to just keep it real, I mean, we're going to, like, Democrat, I believe we're going to win. I think Georgia will be a blue state for, for many years to come. But if this law stands, which I believe is going to be caught up in massive litigation, hopefully there will be an injunction. But if for some reason we are forced to try to have an election with this law in the books, I mean, it can't be close. We're going to have to win big because the Republicans, I believe, are stacking the deck for their benefits. You know, I just had Doug Jones on recently, Senator Jones, um, and we talked about preclearance. And I wonder, you know, just to take a quick detour really quick before we move on, but is some of the stuff in this bill things that would otherwise have to have been run by the Department of Justice under preclearance before that was removed? Great point. I mean, and and that's what makes you know, it's so important what's happening in Washington, which I know this wasn't, you know, on our sort of schedule to talk about that we've got to get 
those bills pass. But I mean, it, it is just allowing state legislators to 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 do uh, what, what they're doing. And I just think that it's really sad. You know, I work for Congressman John Lewis, yeah. a, a man who died uh, on his last breath. The last time I talked to him, we were talking about voting. Um, you know, we weren't talking about anything but family and voting. And so it just saddens me that we're at a point uh, in our in our democracy in 2021 where we're having this very uncomfortable yeah. conversation. Yeah. Okay, now let's talk about runoffs. There were major changes to the runoff process in addition to all of the other things we've talked about. Now, the runoff period has been shortened from nine weeks down to four weeks. And this is going to really cut into vote-by-mail options for runoff elections. It will also prevent newly eligible voters from voting in runoffs since the registration deadline is 29 days before an election. And they've reduced mandatory early voting availability from three weeks to one week. So what is this going to mean for runoff elections? And, you know, with, with the backdrop of, as we've talked about on the podcast before, our listeners should now be familiar with the history and purpose of the way runoff elections work in the South, which is essentially to disenfranchise black people, right? I would tell you this, Ron, the nine-week runoff in Georgia is something that, I, quite frankly, a lot of Democrats and Republicans uh, sort of have been talking about for years and seeing if there was a way to sort of have the runoff election sooner. Okay. What we didn't want, though, and this is why it's always sort of been a, a, a challenge is, okay, if you go from nine weeks to eight weeks or you go from nine weeks to six weeks or even four weeks, how do you give enough time to county officials to count the votes, certify them? That takes a week. And then get all the information back out, ballots printed for absentee, and then also you know allow people who weren't registered at the time to re-register. I mean, it was just always very, very complicated. And so... This is one where I think while many folks make up their minds pretty soon of who they want to vote for, particularly those who vote for the candidate and that candidate, he or she makes it to the runoff, they're highly likely, not always uh, the, the case. But here's the thing about the runoff election. I want to go back to that. The runoff elections in Georgia, we had almost 100,000 voters come out and vote in a runoff that didn't vote in November. Right. Right. I, mean, I want to repeat that. Huge. That's that huge. is huge. That does not, that's sort of flies in the face of, of the history of runoffs. And so when you, when you have that happen, and I can't believe that there were that many people, I think there were roughly about 300,000 people for whatever reason didn't vote uh, in November in 2020 in Georgia. And so we were able to target those folks, particularly those we know vote Democrat. And I think the numbers are still kind of, you know, coming in. But I can safely say on this podcast that I, th I know it was at least access of seventy to 75,000 new voters who came back out in the runoff and didn't vote in the general. And so the, so this is a, just another one where, it, it again, it, it makes it harder. It restricts the access. Um, but I want to be fair. I mean, there have been Democrats who said, man, waiting nine weeks to have a right. runoff. Is a long time, but because you want to, you want to capture the momentum of the general election and the voters who voted in it, right? So you don't want it to be too far away, but you also still need to give uh, officials enough time to prepare and execute the election. 
And it was it was it was a double edged sword for now Senator Raphael Warnock, and I'm so happy to be able to say this yeah. um, to you because remember he was in a special primary in a crowded field, 30 candidates. So once he emerged as the person who was going up against then Senator Leffler, that nine week was tough for him because remember his first ad out the gates, and you guys talked about it, was him sort of saying, get ready, Georgia. They're going to they're gonna lie. They're going to tell me all this stuff. But it was also beneficial to him because his special primary, um, he didn't really have a chance to really introduce himself to voters the way he wanted because he knew he was going to be going up against so much money in a runoff. And so I know that he benefited from the nine weeks, but also had we had four weeks, I think he still would have had enough money to get his message out and ultimately be victorious. Yeah. Okay, I want to talk about the corporate response and the boycotts a bit. But before we do that, is there anything else in this bill that needs to be aired that we need to sort of lay out for our listeners? Ron, you've, you've done a fantastic job of, of covering everything. If, if I may ask for a, a privilege to just bring up one more thing, please, and that is the provisional ballot. Okay. So right now... What is a provisional ballot? Okay. So a provisional <laughs> ballot is a ballot that uh, the elections precincts are to give you if for some reason, for whatever reason, that you're at the wrong precinct. And so you're able to be given a provisional ballot to vote. You have to identify yourself. You put down the same information, your address, uh, your date of birth, you know, your full name, everything. And those are ballots that precincts up until Senate Bill 202 were allowed to um, to take from the voter. And these were the last ballots in Georgia that were counted. So it always kind of went this way, Ron. If it was a late night, and I hope one day you can come to Atlanta and we can yeah. experience an election together. <laughs> I'll tell you, all right, Ron, here we go. We're going to count the votes that were on election day. Then the next thing, we're going to count the early votes. And then we're going to count the absentee votes. But then I would always kind of say, and I would say to you, Ron, well, hold on. We have provisional ballots. And so what Senate Bill 202 has done is this. If I'm a voter... Theron Johnson, and I've been voting at a precinct for 17 years. And I didn't get the memo during COVID. Maybe I got remarried. Maybe, you know, life happens. And I didn't get the notification that my precinct had changed. Historically, up until Senate Bill 202, I could go to my same precinct that I've been voting for for 17 years. And the, the election worker, he or she would be so nice and say, you know what? You're not registered to vote at this precinct anymore. But hey, we're going to let you vote provisionally. Now in Georgia, if you show up and you wait an hour, wait for hours and, and to, to vote in precinct and you show up before five o'clock, they're basically saying, you know what, Theron Johnson, I'm not going to let you vote here. You got to go to your new precinct. And to me, that is something that discourages people from voting. Yeah. While I do believe people in Georgia always do the right thing and go to their new precincts, you do have that drop off. Mm hmm. Also, the new law states that if you, for some reason, show up after five o'clock at the wrong precinct, and let's say you work all day, let's say you have a job that doesn't allow you to get off until uh, five o'clock, let's say you have to stay at home and take care of your kids, they will allow you to vote provisional, but you have to sign an affidavit that states a valid reason that they will accept a why you can't go to your now mm -hmm. new precinct. The they being the state election board. Correct. So this has to go for review. That's correct. And they then have to determine whether or not, you know, the whole cure process in Georgia is one that's very complicated and that Democrats and Republicans were able to get a list in Georgia to say, hey, these are 
people who voted provisional ballot, you know, they need to come cure their vote. And that was a public list that they were uh, that were given to both parties. And then you would then have a mechanism in place to contact these folks and say, hey, Theron Johnson, please call this number or go to this address and make sure that you are able to prove that you are who you say you are and validate this information. Which is what we mean when we say curing your ballots. That's a that's a phrase that I think probably a lot of people heard during 2020. And essentially what it means is you cast a provisional ballot and you need to make sure that the, that the state knows that you are who you say you are. Otherwise, they're not going to count it if you don't take this additional step, right? And that's something that I think that Democrats are going to have to communicate to voters if Senate Bill 202 and this particular provision remains, that we're going to have to encourage people to be proactive, look at your voter registration card, check your voting registration status and your precinct status online, double check it before you leave your house to to go and vote. Because what we don't want to do is to have people who, for whatever reason, historically show up to the wrong precincts, be discouraged from voting because of this new law. Okay, so I want to zoom out now and talk about the corporate response to all of this and the and you know the Trump boycotts and why this matters at, at, at the national level. So we saw the MLB uh, say that they're moving the All Star Game out of Atlanta. Stacey Abrams has asked people to hold off on boycotts uh, and called on corporations to use their considerable weight to draw attention to voter suppression laws and and work to ensure voting rights. Um, but there have been calls to boycott Georgia-based companies and the state itself. We saw that, you know, the, the Trump list, it's like a mile long of all these, all these corporations are based in, in Georgia. How should we be thinking about the use of boycotts? What factors do people need to weigh as they consider whether they should exercise the right to boycott? And, and also, I'm just really curious about your take on how sort of engaged in this process for, for good, a lot of these companies seem to be. And, and what the, you know, the corporate response has been, you know, very negative uh, toward, this, toward this law. And it seems like, you know, they're trying to do the right thing. But I'm, I'm interested in your take on all this. So let's just let's start with the boycotts. Yeah. I believe that boycotts have played such an important role in the development of this country. If you look at how boycotts during the civil rights movement if those had not happened, then we wouldn't have had the voting rights bill. We wouldn't have had a civil rights um, bill. Um, if you look at how you have people have used boycotts uh, to make sure their voices are heard, and it's usually been into response to something that's negatively impacted them. So I want to start off by saying that I'm a person who believes that uh, when boycotts are, are necessary and people have a end goal in mind. And that's what they want to do. Uh, again, I work for Congressman John Lewis. I wouldn't dare say I'm against uh, boycotts. But what I will say, Ron, is that I don't think we're there yet in Georgia. And boycotting um, businesses and, and boycotting at the time when the discussion first started, the MLB All-Star Game, which, by the way, was going to be held in Cobb County, which was a historic Republican stronghold county that's now a Democrat stronghold county that has a black woman elected as chairwoman, Lisa Cupid, who literally went on television here locally and begged for the MLB all-star game not to be taken away from Cobb County because of the tens of millions of dollars that it was going to help the businesses 
around the, the 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 stadium and also just Georgia, which by the way is supposed to be the number one state to do business. So again, respectful boycotts. I don't think we're there yet. I'm only repeating what Stacey Abrams said. She's she came out and said, not just yet, you know, um, we, we gotta really try to figure this out. Corporate community. So and and Georgia was so interesting, and just to name a few, Delta, Coca-Cola, Home Depot. Uh, Microsoft came out in a, in a big way. Brad Smith, president of Microsoft, Ed Bastian, the CEO of Delta, um, and others. Is the corporate community for so long has had a good working relationship with elected officials in Georgia. And even former governor Nathan Deal relied on the corporate community community's impact and, and input to decide whether or not uh, he wanted to veto certain bills. What has happened now is there are some in Georgia that are saying, you know what, corporate community, yeah, you guys made statements, which a lot of them did. That's one of the things I want to clear up. Most of these corporations made statements of opposition before Senate Bill 202 was passed and signed by Governor Kemp. What you saw after the ceremony of the image of these Republicans standing over Governor Kemp and him signing this bill and back was a portrait of a plantation. I'm only, you know, this is just facts. Yeah. Um, that's when you saw the corporate community, particularly here in Georgia, start to double down and come out harder. And so I commend them for first and foremost using their First Amendment right to speak up and speak out. And I commend them for being bold and saying what a lot of us have been saying from the, from the inception of when this, these 80-plus bills were introduced. So now what you're seeing is a backlash uh, from some Republicans who are saying, you know what, blame it on President Biden. Blame it on Stacey Abrams. Blame it on Lisa Cupid in Cobb County. They're the ones that actually cost you Georgians the MLB All-Star game. Wow. But there's some Republicans that are saying, well, hold on, like— can we get more facts? Like, why did the MLB really pull out? And then how much communications did you have with them in this process? And was, was it because of corporate dollars? Because corporations started pushing back? Was it the players union? A lot of those questions right. are unanswered. Right. But, but the corporate community has such a huge role to play because if you start boycotting corporations and start boycotting sporting events, then you are hurting the workers. Right. And, and again, I'm not saying... You know, again, I'm, I'm I'm a person who believes in peaceful protests, but I believe that what I'm saying is what others have been saying, that we were not at a point then before the MLB All-Star Game uh, was not being held here anymore. And I don't think we're at a point there yet because what we got to be prepared for is that we're going to be in months, if not a year of litigation. And I just want to say this. I think there's a unique opportunity for Republicans and Democrats to get together. There's got to be one Republican, he or she, to step up and say, you know what, I know the bill is signed in the law, but why don't we all come together and let's just figure out if there's a different legislative pass, pathway to, to bring different representation in a room and figure out if there's any type of compromise. Like, what is the one, you know, we just went through a a, a massive illustration of what's wrong with the yeah, bill, right? Right. So what, what are the things that we can kind of live with and what are the things we can't? And I know some Democrats are going to say, you know what, all of it needs to no go. No compromise. And, and, yeah. And yeah. I would understand that because if it's based on, you know, if it's based on a false premise and you're actually, you're, you're there, you're, you've got this, 
you know, solution, and I put that in air quotes, solution yeah. in search of a problem, then why are we doing it at all? And there, and there are a lot of people in my party that are going to say that. But there are some people who are scared to say what I'm saying. Uh, but that is, well, okay, it's signed into law now. It's going to get caught up in litigation. The bill probably won't ever make it through the courts. You were waiting on the federal government to pass, you know, some bills that hopefully will uh, supersede the local sort of state bills. But the the the, the corporations here now are, are to be applauded. They're be to, to be commended. And more importantly, I think that they, they are reading the pulse of their workforce. Uh, and I think a lot of their workers were consulted. Uh, and, you know, you hear when you hear terms like it was based on a lie, it was unacceptable. Um, when you, you just hear all these different comments from the corporate community, that is going to be something that ultimately, once everyone comes down, we got to figure out how we get back to the table and repair that relationship. So moving forward, what kind of a timeline are we looking at when we might see the impact of this bill? Like when are the first elections coming up in Georgia? We have some municipal elections coming up in Georgia this November. Uh, The Atlanta mayor's race is going to be this November uh, coming up. And so that will be the first time um, that this will happen. And and I got to say this real quickly, Ron. What was so different about the legislative process in Georgia, because I want to I want to be fair and, and and sort of you know give our listeners the 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 uh, how things unfolded in its in its totality is historically in Georgia Democrat Democratic governors and Republican governors they always wait until after the legislature is over and they historically sign bills in the months of April and May you know so there's time to kind of make sure that. Ledge Council, you know, Legislative Council has had opportunity to say, all right, let me look at this and make sure this this bill, you know, is legally correct. Let me get some way in. You know, usually you do ceremonial uh, events where you bring in different groups for the governor to sign it less than two hours like after it passed. Yeah. Which was his decision, and he's he stood by that and not being critical of him. I'm only just being, you know, sort of fair here to say that's why you saw the uproar so quickly. Because I think some people thought, like, after the bill passed, you were going to have a month or thirty to forty five days to sort of maybe have some conversations before he signed it. But him signing it less than two hours um, after the bill passed was something that was just very swift in some people's mind. So the process, so now, so it'll be November. Yeah. Uh, and then also keep in mind, like every state, we're getting ready to embark upon a redistricting period. That's right. Uh, and so while the census data is still coming in, I know a lot of states, particularly in Georgia, we're waiting on that data to be finalized. So we're not sure if we'll actually go back and have a special session this year to deal specifically with redistricting? And if so, when would that happen? Right, right. And we just talked about, uh, so we're doing a series on redistricting on politicology called Drawing Democracy. And we just did our second installment of that, specifically about the Voting Rights Act, Section 2, Section 5, preclearance. And essentially, it's a it's a deep dive with David Becker. And if you're curious about how that's going to play out, I'd encourage you to go listen to that episode I want to talk about other states for a minute uh, before we go, Theron, because Georgia is not the only state uh, that is uh, going to be uh, sort of dealing with with these uh, this kind of uh, legislation. According to the Brennan Center for Justice, there were 361 bills with restrictive provisions in 47 states as of March 24th. 
That is an increase of 108 bills since February 19th. How should we be thinking about the rash of restrictive voting laws all across the country, not just in Georgia, but pretty much everywhere? And really, what can people do? What can our listeners do? What do we need to do to help protect voting rights? So I think what happens now, Ron, is that, and that's a stat that just blows my mind. I mean, that's why you're so great. I I had no idea that it was, you know, 361 bills in 47 states. I mean, I knew it was a high number, but so I think it does a, does a sort of dual approach. Empower state legislators, the men and women who want to make voting more accessible make it secure and fair for their voters, right? Empower them with resources and let's figure out who these people are and and make sure that we do everything we can to support uh, them in these states because clearly the opposite party has an agenda that is being fully funded and they're on a mission. So let's let's make sure that we empower those folks and let's, let's not give up on fighting these, these state issues, particularly around voting because I think Georgia is a, sort of project that people can look at and say, wow, like this is, if this can happen in Georgia based upon a false narrative and a reaction of them losing, then it can definitely happen in my state. Yeah. But then I think the second approach is we've got to pass the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act. And I know I mentioned him now several times on this podcast, but I just believe that his spirit is in my it's in my body and my soul because I mean this is what I think he would have been saying. Uh, he would have probably said it better than me with much more passion. Um, but I definitely want to make sure I echo what he stood for for so many so many decades. And then you also have HR uh, one, which is another uh, federal bill that that deals with with voting, and so. While there have been so many people saying, hey, when these federal bills are passed, it'll sort of supersede and it'll make these state bills go away. Well, I think that will happen. I hope it will. But in the meantime, I think we got to continue to fight in the states, but also encourage our members of Congress, our, our senators, our, our members to uh, to pass uh, this these two pieces of legislation on the federal level. I also think it's important just to contextualize why Republicans are pushing so hard for these restrictive, more restrictive voting laws. It's not just because they lost, right? It's not, it, that is, that is yes, that's a reason, but it's also because they have nothing else to offer that is marketable to the voters. They, in order to win, they actually have to reduce the number of people who have access to voting, not persuade them with better arguments or better policy ideas. That's, that, that is a really important takeaway for me anyway. I agree. I totally agree. Theron, before I let you go, where else can people find you on the internet? People should just follow me on Twitter. It's uh, Theron Johnson. That's T as in Tom, H-A-R-O-N Johnson. Uh, and also um, just, you know, uh, Instagram is, is Theron L. Johnson and Facebook is, is Theron Johnson. But um, just really appreciate you guys inviting me back. And thank you so much for uh, giving me this time. Thank you for your leadership, Ron. Thanks, Theron. We'll see you soon. Thank you. Thank you to everyone at home or on the go for listening. If you have any questions or advice for us, you can reach us at podcast at politicology.com. You can help us by rating and reviewing the show wherever you get your podcasts. It helps us rise in the rankings so that new listeners can find the show. 
And make sure you're following us on Twitter and Instagram at PoliticologyPod. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.